and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside Drew. Howdy. And TJ. Hello. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPECS, a student faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPECS and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. This week on SpexCast, we discuss the recent Iridium launch by SpaceX and controversy between SpaceX and the NOAA. We also delve into Starlink updates, Blue Origin's New Glenn, and Chinese space station Tiangong-1. Please let us know what other topics you would like us to discuss in the future by sending us a tweet at RITSpecs or an email at specscast.com. You can find show notes and resources to all the articles and tweets we used in the making of this episode at our blog, blog.specscast.com. So let's start with the first piece of news, um, the recent Iridium launch by SpaceX. Uh, March is always, or at least seemingly always, a, a busy time for space news. There's a lot going on. This is the first launch of what's been dubbed the uh, SpaceX steamroller, where they're trying to launch five rockets within within 30 days, within about a month. So it's a bit egregious to call this a controversy, but there was this issue where SpaceX during the live stream had to cut the feed, not, it wasn't sudden, they announced it before the start of the stream, that they were only going to show uh, separation. They weren't going to show any of the live stream from space, from the second stage, after uh, the engine had started. And that was because of a restriction placed on them by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Yeah, and this comes down to licensing. I looked up uh, the official statement from NOAA, um, and they said, Now that launch companies are putting video cameras on Stage 2 rockets that reach an on-orbit status, all such launches will be held to the requirements of the law and its conditions. Um, And that referring to the National and Commercial Space Program Act from, I think, back in the 90s or so. So, um, quoting here, SpaceX applied and received a license from NOAA that included conditions on their capability to live stream from space. Conditions on Earth imaging to protect national security are common to all licenses for launches with on-orbit capabilities. So, some of the speculation that I have been reading before had been that um, this had been a law and had not been enforced, in particular on SpaceX. Uh, However, uh, something might have changed recently that made the NOA aware of SpaceX's live streaming of the Earth, uh, particularly their 12-hour live stream of a car in space with the Earth prominently featured in the background. Uh, so this is the drama. So that's that's a speculative bit of drama. So we're not sure if SpaceX had a NOAA license uh, for prior launches, but suddenly this has applied to them uh, kind of out of the blue. But Phil, as you read from the statement, SpaceX applied and received for a license from NOAA, and the fact that they applied and received it makes me wonder... Why then did they not show the rest of the stream? Why were they still under a restriction? Um, but they've, you know, in the past, we've seen streams from Dragon, and we've seen it from other second stages from previous launches. So it's, it just looks like it's catching up now. Noah is starting to enforce this policy. 
Yeah, I mean, in the end, it doesn't really matter. Um, they got the license. They can show the streams again, presumably. But yeah, it, I guess uh, Noah's kind of paying attention now. Another way to kind of look at the whole situation is uh, from kind of a legal standpoint of how uh, laws uh, that are 20, 30 years old at this point um, are conflicting with current activities. Where in the 90s, uh, when Noah implemented this law for remote sensing, it was applying to companies that were putting private satellites to take images that to put then put them onto sale. So uh, companies like Digital Globe, uh, any commercial satellite imagery provider, and so they built a framework for those companies to be licensed and managed, uh, so that there were to be a functional market there. But uh, as we're seeing now with SpaceX launching you know, five rockets for the month or, you know, every two, three weeks, there's more of these temporary satellites. Uh, you know, the second stage is only active for roughly 12 hours in the best case uh, that have cameras that, that fall under the classification of remote sensing, but it's not what you would assume when you think remote sensing. It's not a permanent satellite. It's not there to take pictures for sale. Uh, it's just there as part of an engineering camera uh, for a launch. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see if that law changes or uh, morphs to suit the commercial market because launch providers are going to be keep launching rockets with HD cameras and telemetry uh, more and more frequently. And also, as we're going to see large constellations uh, come on the next 5, 10 years that might feature cameras as well. Yeah, it, it's going to be cool um, to see how policy changes and whether new new regulation is going to come into play with all this changing in activity or, uh, you know, some old laws are going to be reworked. Is there anything else special about this launch? So uh, the next kind of exciting news item uh, with regards to Iridium was recovery of the fairings. Uh, so some people had assumed that this might be the mission where an intact fairing is recovered. On the previous launch uh, from Vandenberg for the PAUSE mission, uh, the fairing has separated, and one of those fairings had recovery hardware, thrusters for orientation, uh, parachutes, and a parasail to uh, guide it to a soft landing. And it just missed the recovery vessel, Mr. Steven, uh, but it was able to be dragged in the water back to the shore. So parts of the fairing were recovered. Uh, and so many people assumed that this mission, with some improvements, might be the one that would actually land on the boat. However, uh, Elon Musk tweeted after the mission, uh, almost at a point of live tweeting, where the first is, attempting recovery of fairing falling down from space right now with our boat, Mr. Steven. It's a giant steel and webbing catcher's mitt superstructure on a high-speed ocean ship. Godspeed, Mr. S. Mr. Steven is five minutes away from being under the falling fairing, don't have live video, and unfortunately, follow-up was, GPS guided parafoil twisted, so fairing impacted water at high speed. Air wake from fairing, messing with parafoil steering, doing kilo drop tests in the next few weeks to solve. Yeah, so it's interesting that um, this reuse program is, is not as a slam dunk as one might hope, uh, but they are kind of pro progressively iterating, which is good. And as we've mentioned on the show before, uh, the way that they are able to progressively iterate using live missions that 
launch paying customers, generate revenue, and where the status quo is the fairings are always lost, always destroyed, means that it's not as a costly R&D program as you might think. Uh, and so that allows them to try over and over and over again until they get it right. Uh, amongst each other, we were also discussing uh, Iridium launch, and the question came up, you know, isn't Iridium satellite communication? Uh, how does that factor in um, to Starlink and OneWeb when we have these constellations of communication satellites? So, Drew, what was your question there? So, I was confused as to what service Iridium provided. I know historically the older Iridium constellation has done sat phones, satellite phones, um, but I thought they were also moving into some sort of internet sphere, which would put them in direct competition with Starlink in the future. So one thing I know Iridium does is um, short burst data, satellite communication, which uh, is basically you put this transceiver on something like a, a truck or a ship that can go out at sea or uh, in the middle of nowhere where there's no cell signal or Wi-Fi or whatever. And it can send back uh, bits of data like its location, maybe some additional info, like its status and things, um, via satellite. It's not really internet. Um, it's kind of just data communication back and forth, um, at least in the system right now. Or, TJ, do you know if they're moving into more internet sphere? Yeah, so the original Iridium constellation um, was capable of voice and roughly like 2G data speeds. And so their market is these very, very compact transceivers that can send small bits of data. So as Phil mentioned, you know, location and like tiny bit of status update. Uh, and so that's really been a, they've been, they have been a really big player in Internet of Things as that's kind of evolved. So again, tracking ships, another big use is tracking industrial equipment, right? If you have a remote mine, in the outback of Australia, and you can have every single dump truck and backhoe communicate to your control center in the city, uh, all via the satellite network. And Iridium, with this launch, is building their next generation, Iridium Next system, which is supposed to have much higher data rates, uh, which is closer to like 3G. So uh, if anyone remembers the original iPhone, or the iPhone 3G, uh, 3G data, you know, you can do basic web pages and small apps and things like that. So it's a <clears throat> pretty big leap in capability from something like 2G, which is incredibly slow. However, uh, the comparison of Iridium to something like Starlink or more appropriately OneWeb is not a great comparison because Iridium has a completely different technology and, and wavelength. They're targeting small bits of data, very small, relatively cheap receivers on devices so that you could put out hundreds or thousands and make sure every device has a dedicated satellite link. Something like Starlink or OneWeb are talking about much larger uh, base stations uh, and they have to be larger and they're gonna be more expensive because they're actively steered whether that's electronically steered or mechanically steered, to follow the rapidly moving satellites. And so those are ideal <clears throat> because of the density of satellites uh, and the different wavelength they use can do 
high-speed internet, like what we consider to be high-speed internet. Uh, so you can have customers, you can do streaming video, you can do uh, web browsing, full apps, all that kind of stuff at a high speed, but the base station is gonna cost 10 times as much and it's gonna be much, much larger. So it's a very different market and one shoot kind of targets industrial customers or commercial customers and OneWeb and Starlink, their proposals have really been consumers or an intermediary that would service consumers. Speaking of Starlink, um, there's another update with regard to uh, Starlink's progress. TJ, what happened there? So Starlink uh, got their FCC license approved, uh, which is a good regulatory step uh, for the project. Obviously, they launched their first two demo stats uh, earlier this year. Uh, and now with that license, uh, they can start progressing and putting up more of the Constellation. Uh, so that's good news on that front. Um, but again, we're still years away from the first production satellites launching and years after that from the first network being operational. Didn't they also get a restriction placed on them by the FCC in that after a certain point, if they don't have all their satellites up, they will be restricted to just those that they have currently operating? Part of that license deal. Let's find more information on that. I remember reading that there was like a, like there was a controversy between having to get the full constellation up versus just a partial constellation. So it's like if you propose launching four thousand satellites, we give you till this date, and if you don't launch those four thousand satellites, then you failed the conditions of your license and get revoked. And OneWeb and SpaceX were arguing. That's not fair slash doesn't make sense because if we launch a thousand satellites or two thousand, we can have a, a available productive service. Uh, and then adding the full four thousand means that the service is higher quality, more resilient, more available. And so they wanted that rule changed. And the underlying basis for that rule is when you get an FCC license to use a batch of spectrum, uh, officially you, you cannot own spectrum, uh, but you can own a revocable license to use that spectrum. They didn't want companies um, applying for a license promising very, very large constellations and then launching a handful of satellites and saying, look, it works, there's a few satellites here and then being able to sit or squat on that spectrum. But um, that whole policy issue, I don't know where that uh, ended up. Looking it up, the approval for their license is conditional on a revised deorbit plan for the satellites because they aren't, they aren't satisfied with the understanding of when these are going to come down because this is a ridiculous number of satellites compared to anything that's been up there before. And the they also, that restriction that we mentioned, is that SpaceX will have to launch at least half of their constellation of satellites within six years. Uh, and this is coming from a Space News article. So that if, if they don't have those half the satellites up within six years, then the authorization from the FCC freezes. Um, and it's just going to be the number of satellites that they already have 
operational at that date. Excellent. Uh, another um, telecommunications constellation news item is uh, the Project Blackjack, which is a U.S. military uh, project that's looking into uh, how the Department of Defense can utilize commercial satellites to provide additional capability and additional resiliency to military communications. So uh, looking at the current market, uh, a good percentage of satellites launched are military, U.S. or other countries' military satellites. And that is because uh, having satellites for reconnaissance, so spy satellites, as well as communications and GPS, which is something we don't really think of as a military thing, but it's a U.S. military first system. Uh, having those satellites gives you a worldwide capability that's incredibly powerful. However, these satellites are usually cutting-edge technology. They're hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, and there's only so many of them. And something like a GPS constellation, which gets built up over decades, which has a few dozen satellites, or uh, the communication satellites that the U.S. military uses for military-only communication, there's a handful in orbit. And that's fine in peacetime, where they're up there, uh, they have lifetimes in 5, 10, 15 years, and they can do their um, capabilities and services uninterrupted. But we've seen in the past 10 years, uh, other countries demonstrate the ability to target and destroy satellites with, or with ground-based weapons. So uh, satellite interceptors launched from the ground or from planes. And so there's been this concern that during wartime, a suitably capable opponent could, within a very short period of time, a month even, take out the vast number of military satellites that their opponent has, uh, which would mean that GPS no longer works, satellite communications, secure satellite communications no longer works, spy satellites don't work. And the way the entire procurement process for military satellites is set up for extremely long lead times, there wouldn't be the launch capability or satellite construction capability to replace those quickly. So you could be looking at two years, four years of not having that capability. And so that's a big risk. This whole idea reminds me of the internet, which came out of, I think, a military think tank at near the end of World War II where they were looking for a distributed communications network um, when the only thing around was, well, telephone and radio at that point. Um, but these were things that were reliant on individual stations that if you took out part of the network, areas may be totally separated. But the internet was developed as a way to have a, have a resistant network of communications where you weren't reliant on any one server or any one location. The whole thing would survive given that most of it was still around. Exactly. And so uh, if you can have more nodes in a network, taking out a few of those nodes, you can still get the capability uh, even if those nodes are missing. And so Project Blackjack is research into whether the U.S. military could use commercial satellites for part of their capability. And while that makes some financial sense of we launch our own communication satellites for... $500 million or a billion dollars, what if we bought some capability off a commercial satellite uh, to make up for that in the near term? 
it really gets exciting when you apply it to these new large scale satellite constellations. So stuff like OneWeb and Starlink, where if the US military had 10 or 20% of the capability reserved across 4,000 satellites, it would take a unreasonably long amount of time and resources for an enemy to destroy enough of those satellites for the network to no longer be operational. Right, and the advantage for using commercial satellites rather than their own is less spacecraft up in there, less investment to develop your own spacecraft. And, you know, you can leverage, um, especially if you go with Starlink and OneWeb, uh, like buying some of their capability, then you even have uh, reduced risk because you're not relying on one technology architecture as well. Yeah, it's all about having, getting more capability on orbit and the ability to replace that satellite quicker. Where instead of having the traditional satellite, U.S. military satellite production process, you have three, four, five different satellite production processes which are commercial-based. That means that if, hypothetically, if the Department of Defense can produce a satellite every six months, and let's use that as the standard, although that's not a great analogy, if you have five separate production lines, that means you can launch a new replacement satellite every month or so. <clears throat> and so that's kind of the, the underlying concept is increase the ability to replace these satellites and by sharing capability with commercial partners for a much lower cost, you can get a large number of satellites. Because asking the Department of Defense to launch 4,000 satellites by itself is extremely expensive. Uh, and if the only reason to do that is to close the hypothetical gap of if we enter a war and someone starts targeting satellites, we have enough backup and reserve to be protected against that. But for 90, 95% of the time when in peace, we just have extra capability we can't really use. Uh, it doesn't make financial sense. But if you can let commercial partners build it, take the risk, and let the commercial partners use it for 90% of the time, then it's a much, much more attractive uh, financial decision, and it gives you some really awesome capability. All right, uh, we've got two more topics to discuss. This one is interesting from Blue Origin. Blue Origin told Space News that they're moving away from a vacuum-optimized BE-4 engine and instead intend to use uh, the BE-3U or the vacuum-optimized BE-3 on top of their new Glenn rocket. So BE-3 is Hydrolox as opposed to uh, the Methylox first stage for new Glenn. Um, and it has also significantly less power than uh, what a BE-4 would have. So I thought this was interesting. Um, it definitely makes sense considering their comments at uh, Sat Show 2018, uh, where they were saying, you know, we're going to iterate on BE3 for the, you know, a long time now. Now that they're using it for New Glenn, it, it makes sense. The reason for this is um, that they, they say they've already developed for BE3 a lot. They've already shown that it can work. And uh, by using a BE3 upper stage, um, they can get New Glenn flying faster than developing the BE-4 for space. I mean, what what are some advantages and disadvantages to using the BE-3 on the upper stage? Obvious advantage is, you know, they've already done most of the work to get it there, uh, but, you know, a whole separate uh, fuel for the upper stage and significantly less power, you know, what does that mean for the rocket? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, Hydrolox is definitely a high-performance fuel for upper stages. We've seen that with uh, the Delta rocket and the Atlas rocket, where uh, the overall vehicle is not that powerful, but having a Hydrolox upper stage gives it really great performance to uh, GTO and GEO and beyond. Uh, and that's because the ISP of hydrogen and oxygen is extremely high. You're looking at 400, 450 seconds compared to something that's Carolox based being 350 to 390 seconds, with seconds being a, a measurement of efficiency of a rocket engine. Uh, now, the switch, like, so the, the upside is a more efficient upper stage, and that increases the delta V or the total energy the upper stage can impart compared to. Uh, other fuel. However, uh, the plan for originally for New Glenn was to have Methalox first stage and second stage, and a Methalox stage combustion upper stage engine is not uh, as dramatically, is not as inefficient as Carolox would be. And so the performance jump is still significant. Uh, companies fight for even one or two seconds of performance increases uh, if they can get it. But uh, it's not a huge jump as you might see from a Carolox or a Hydrazine upper stage to Hydrolox. Uh, the other issue that Phil mentioned is that the actual thrust of the upper stage is close to one-fifth. BE4 has a thrust projected of 550,000 pounds. BE3 has a projected thrust of just 110,000 pounds. Uh, so that's a rather dramatic reduction in thrusts. Now, to be fair, with an upper stage, uh, that thrust is actually not as big as an issue as it might seem, because uh, at that point, you're traveling perpendicular to Earth's gravity. You're trying to uh, accelerate faster to enter an orbit. And so uh, as long as you're able to supply all the delta V needed before you re-enter, then uh, you're not actually losing anything by having a low thrust engine. And so you see that with Atlas Centaur, uh, with a Centaur with a single upper stage engine configuration, it really has to work hard to uh, accelerate into orbit before it falls back down. Uh, we saw an issue on a prior Atlas V mission, just like, I don't know, two years ago, where uh, underperformance of the first stage meant that the second stage cut it very, very close to re-entering uh, before putting the payload in orbit, even though it had enough fuel. Uh, it is a totally valid engineering choice to go with a lower thrust, more efficient upper stage engine. The real question that I have is, uh, the original plan for New Glenn was a two-stage all-methalox rocket and then a future variant with three stages with the third stage being Hydrolox with the BE-3. If they set the second stage to have a single BE-3, that kind of puts a cap on how big the payloads can be and how much fuel they can have because of that thrust limit uh, for the second stage. So it's just really interesting to see like are we going to see a upper stage V2 or V3 with more engines? Uh, are we ever going to see a third stage New Glenn? Uh, it's just really interesting to see how that might progress over time.
reading this article from Space News, um, where I where I found out about this, Blue Origin cites uh, the reasoning is so they don't they only have to develop two types of engines, meaning the BE four and the BE three U, rather than three. But how big of an engineering change is it to go from um, a sea level um, or or first stage optimized engine to a vacuum variant? Isn't it just changing the size of the the engine bell and maybe changing some mixture ratios? Or is there a lot more that goes into it to make it optimized for space? The main engineering changes are at a like rocket system level, right? So uh, if you switch a rocket fuel type, uh, that can have dramatic either a dramatic impact on performance or a dramatic impact on dimensions, and usually both. And so uh, the main thing to, to take away from this is that hydrogen, liquid hydrogen, is extremely uh, light or not dense. So you need a very large volume in your second stage to have the same energy that you would have with a denser fuel like liquid methane liquid natural gas, or liquid uh, RP-1. So in general, you have much longer, larger tanks. Um, and you can kind of run into issues where you have to make the tanks bigger to hold more fuel, but making the tanks bigger adds more dry mass. And on the second stage, dry mass really hurts payload performance. Uh, and so that's why on Centaur you see uh, balloon tanks like doing everything they can to minimize the amount of dry mass in the second stage tanks and trying to maximize the mass fraction of get as much fuel in there as possible, minimize everything else. The other issue is uh, just pad maintenance and pad design. When you have two propellant types, really three, we have hydrogen, liquid oxygen, and liquid natural gas, you you now need to have more plumbing on site. And liquid hydrogen is a hard substance to, to pump and uh, keep encapsulated at those temperatures. It's a cryogenic uh, propellant. So that's going to mean the pads going to be more expensive. The handling procedures are going to be more complex. The plumbing on the launch towers is going to be harder and all that kind of stuff. But didn't you say uh, original plans for New Glenn had a Hydrolox upper, uh, third stage? So I wonder if they kind of said, you know, why bother... Um, you know, if we're going to have eventually two different uh, hydrolox and methylox, anyway, let's just go with hydrolox from the beginning. That's true. Um, but with that plan, it was always assumed that the 2020 deadline for New Glenn was the two-stage all-methane. And that means you can build the rocket, get all the operational kinks out of the system. Down the road, you can upgrade the pad to support a, a third fuel type. So I, Phil, you suggested this might be a move to get New Glenn done faster. Uh, I don't think it'll, it might, I don't think it'll impact the schedule enough for it to be faster. Uh, we might see it take the same time, and if there's any issues dealing with hydrogen on the ground, it might take longer. However, New Shepard is a full Hydrolox vehicle. They have plenty of experience dealing with Hydrolox. So I don't think that would be an issue. All right, let's move on to the last topic. China's first space station, Tiangong-1, Chinese space agency lost contact with it and control over it a couple of years ago. Um, since then, they've launched their second iteration, Tiangong-2, um, which has been working fine. But 
now uh, Tiangong 1 is going to re-enter the atmosphere and be destroyed. In the past, uh, we've seen this type of thing happen before, things like Mir and Skylab, where an entire space station comes through the atmosphere. Um, and it's kind of scary, uh, in my opinion, because this thing is pretty big. It's about the size of a school bus. And as we know, like the bigger things falling through the atmosphere, depending on how much time and how fast they're going, may not burn up all the way. So um, scientists and astronomers and uh, the general public really have been following this uh, defunct space station, trying to predict where it's going. And um, there's a lot of uncertainty. It's tumbling. So there's a lot of variables that impact how much drag it sees. Um, so uh, Drew, you were looking up predictions for when and, and where it would come to the Earth. What What's our time frame? When is it going to crash? Well, right now, the most recent prediction that's out there is that it's going to re-enter around midnight on April 1st UTC time. So in most of the U.S., it'll be the evening of April 1st. That's this coming April Fool's Day and um, Easter Sunday. But currently, the error bars on those predictions are still at plus or minus seven hours. So we aren't sure exactly what day it's going to be, but it should be this upcoming weekend that it re-enters. By the, by the time this episode airs, it'll probably have already happened. It's likely to come down over the Pacific Ocean, uh, which is great because there's not a lot out there. Yeah, that plus or minus seven hours means that it could come down pretty much anywhere. But the Chinese Space Agency's initial estimate was, well... Not so much of an estimate as a, a pretty broad uh, guess, or a pretty broad range of area where it could come down was between 43 deg degrees north latitude and 43 degrees south latitude, which is, you know, most of the populated Earth. Regardless of, you know, where the population centers are, it's really unlikely that anything is going to hit anyone. Because although this thing is, as Phil said, is like the size of a bus, it's about... 8,500 kilograms at launch, most of it will burn up, and that that doesn't is most likely going to land in an area that isn't populated. Most of the Earth's surface isn't populated. So we won't, I don't think anyone has any cause to worry. That brings the question, why is it so hard to predict? Uh, if we know its dimensions, we know how big it is. Um, I've seen videos of it being imaged with radar telescopes. We know how it's tumbling. Scientists have characterized Earth's atmosphere pretty well. What, why are these error bars so big? Yeah, so there's a few reasons uh, why we can't get an accurate prediction even t 24 hours before the event. Uh, and that comes down to um, the atmosphere and the general mass and shape or the cross-sectional area. So uh, there's t two things that come into kind of orbital drag. Uh, we have a space station with very large solar arrays, so it's got a very large area. And as Phil, as you mentioned, it's tumbling. So the cross-sectional area at any point in time is changing, and as it tumbles and hits more air, the rotation rate changes as well. And so it's really hard to model that and that interaction over long periods of time. Um, for the other reason, the density of the atmosphere is actually changing uh, relatively constantly and can change to a very large degree. And that's attributed to uh, changes in solar flux. So depending on how the uh, activity of the sun changes over time, which is still very hard for us to predict, the uh, density or height 
of the atmosphere changes. Uh, <clears throat> and so as the atmosphere heats up, uh, the height or the atmosphere rises uh, and the amount of air molecules at orbital altitude increases, which increases drag. And so when we're talking about predicting this a month ago, it was, here's a week or two week window because we have no idea how the density of the atmosphere might change during that time. And a lot of these are exponential effects. And that goes to one of the paradoxes of orbital mechanics, where if you're in orbit and you slow yourself down or reduce your kinetic energy, you actually go faster. And that's because uh, to maintain orbit, you have to be going at a certain velocity at a certain altitude. And you have energy in your potential energy of height and your kinetic energy. And so when you slow down, whether it's with reaction thrusters or solar pressure or uh, atmospheric drag, you're reducing your kinetic energy uh, and that changes your orbit. And so over time, uh, you'll actually lose altitude, which means you have to be going faster. And so it's a really interesting uh, kind of input-output scenario where you try to remove velocity, but you're actually removing total energy and your velocity increases. And as your velocity increases, uh, you hit more air, uh, which causes a greater drag force, which causes you to slow down, which causes you to lose altitude, which causes you to hit more and more air. And so uh, if you've been looking at the uh, graph of orbital height uh, for Tiangong 1, you can see during its life uh, very, a very gradual descent, and then they would reboost it, gradual descent, reboost. After they lost communication, they stopped reboosting it. It kept at that uh, rate of descent uh, over time, and then that rapidly became an exponential curve downwards. And so trying to figure out exactly where the exponential curve hits zero or hits an altitude where uh, it becomes a re-entering object and not an orbital object is very, very difficult. Um, so this isn't the first time a space station has uh, re-entered the atmosphere and hit the Earth. Uh, two notable space stations were Skylab and Mir. Uh, so Skylab was the first uh, United States Space Station. It was a dry workshop where they uh, basically modified the third stage of a Saturn V to be an orbital laboratory, launched that on top of a Saturn V, the last launch of a Saturn V, and then serviced that with Apollo modules launched on Saturn 1Bs. So Skylab, once they uh, decommissioned it, once it ran out of consumables and America basically abandoned it on orbit, uh, they didn't have any way to control the station. And so it made an uncontrolled re-entry, and at the time, they used very similar logic to uh, what we're using, where the range from the max uh, orbital inclination to the min orbital inclination is so large, there's so much surface of the Earth to cover, and a lot of that's covered in water, that it's most likely going to land in the ocean, and if it hits land, it's going to hit completely abandoned wilderness, and it won't be a problem. However, it actually uh, re-entered on July 11th, 1979, and landed near Perth, Australia. And actually, parts of it crashed in Esperance, Australia. And there's actually a museum that you can go visit that uh, you can see parts of Skylab that survived re-entering from space. Uh, most notably, um, the uh, pressurized bottles uh, that are used to hold gas at high pressure. 
uh, and those are built to withstand extreme internal pressure, uh, and so they're actually rugged enough to survive reentry. We've seen uh, SpaceX uh, pressurized bottles land in the ocean and wash up on shore. Uh, we've seen them, in general, talking about spacecraft, these are the strongest, most robust components that tend to make it down. Um, so you can actually visit Esperance Australia. They have the oxygen tank from Skylab on display as well as a lot of other components. Uh, fortunately, uh, no one was hurt. Fun fact, the Australian government actually ticketed uh, the U.S. government for littering. <laughs> yeah, they sent a $400 litter fine and a uh, radio station um, in California actually sent a oversized check paying for it. Because at the time, uh, this was actually like a big cultural event. Um, we haven't seen a lot of talk about Tiangong-1, uh, but this was, Skylab was a very popular uh, U.S. space mission, so a lot of people knew about it. And the reentry, because it was going to be uncontrolled, is where is it going to land? Is it going to land on your house? Is it going to land in the ocean? Is like There was a lot of, not uh, mania or, or fear, but it was something that a lot of people were talking about at the time, uh, which is something that's really interesting. It doesn't apply here, but there's concern about things surviving reentry when there's anything radioactive involved. Because there was a Russian satellite where its reactor wasn't successfully jettisoned before reentry. Uh, it wasn't safely separated. So it reentered with that and broke apart, scattering enriched uranium all over northern Canada. Um, so it can be a problem when things survive reentry, um, but. In this case, that won't be a problem that we have to deal with. Yeah. Now, on the other side of uh, space station reentries is Mir. Now, Mir was the uh, Russian space station, kind of a precursor to the International Space Station. Uh, so Mir, uh, unlike Skylab, had a controlled reentry, uh, and so they aimed it for a point called Point Nemo, uh, which is supposedly the most remote point on Earth where it's the farthest from any permanently inhabited settlements by humans, uh, and that's in the South Pacific. And so they use Progress spacecraft, which are autonomous um, Soyuz-derived spacecraft, to uh, perform the deorbit burns. It re-entered on March 23, 2001, uh, and there's a really nice orbital track, or re-entry track, where it started from uh, the south southern tip of Japan, down past a lot of the uh, Southeast Asia, and then finally re-entering and hitting the ocean. Uh, and so in that case, where you have control of the system, uh, you can deorbit, give a nice light show to the people uh, along the path, but cause basically uh, zero harm to people or wildlife. You know, it might be pronounced Nemo. We'll just call it Nemo. We'll call it Nemo. Finding Nemo. I don't remember my last one. All right, thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to future episodes and tell your friends. You can check out our backlog of content, including interviews with key space personas like Tori Bruno, Chris Hadfield, and NASA scientists, as well as our reactions to recent events in the space industry. Let us know what you think of the show. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast service of choice or reach out to us via Twitter at RITSpecs or email at specscast at gmail.com. If you're interested in some of the stories we talked about today, check out our blog, blog.specscast.com, 
where we have links to all the news articles, tweets, and additional resources that we used in the making of this show. We'll be back next week with another discussion on space, exploration, science, and technology. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent the views and opinions of the host's employers. Our theme song is by Nelson Scott.